Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Hi, my name is Pat Iyer, and this is Legal Nurse Podcast. I have the pleasure of bringing to you today, Joe Flores, who started out as a registered nurse, worked in the critical care environment, decided to become a nurse practitioner, became a nurse practitioner, and then ultimately went on to school to become an attorney. And Joe practices in Corpus Christi, Texas, and is familiar to some of our Legal Nurse Podcast listeners because Joe's podcasts have always been popular and in fact, I think it was just a couple of years ago, Joe, that it was the number one most listened to podcast of all of the shows that I did that year. So welcome back as our special guest. Thank you, Pat. It's a pleasure to be here and hello to all nurses. I know that our listener is going to be curious about how you put these pieces together in terms of going from a critical care staff nurse, as I understand it to your desire to become a nurse practitioner. Let's start there. And as our legal nurse consultants are listening to this, you know, what are the lessons learned from that step that you took from staff nurse to nurse practitioner? Well, sure. Uh, the first lesson I learned was patience, which <laughs> as a young man, I was not very patient, but it takes a while. Uh, you'll get there. And so I was working in ICU where patience isn't a virtue. Uh, patience uh, has no place in ICU. You move quickly, efficiently, and get the job done. So in life, I had that sort of uh, stage behind me, that uh, world. So I was impatient, lights, things like that. So when uh, I was working, uh, they approached me. I had a friend of mine working as a nurse practitioner, and I really didn't know, honestly, a lot about nurse practitioners. Back 23, 25 years ago in Texas, uh, there weren't too many other than uh, midwives um, and maybe some specialized CNSs. They were just starting to come out at A&M. The program was just becoming, you know, from the ground up. Uh, and so the hospital I was at helped me get through it uh, through tuition reimbursement and things like that. But I worked nights and I worked many nights, uh, and, uh, had to study during the day. And, uh, luckily I was young and had to, uh, my hold on sleep deprivation. I could still go on a bit. Um, but that's how I got there. Uh, you know, my critical care skills and critical thinking, uh, were augmented by the training I received as a nurse practitioner. I reconciled both of them together because no matter what field you're in, uh, you need critical thinking skills and you need anticipatory guidance to your patients about what you're going to do and what they can expect without giving them false hope or without judgment, but just helping them out. So I sort of congealed the ICU and nurse practitioner together and it worked well. And I moved on to the geriatric field, which was two thirds of the people I took care of anyway in ICU. 
So it wasn't any big surprise to me. And I loved it. And uh, that's how I, I got there. When you specialized in your education as a nurse practitioner, did you subspecialize to a specific type of nurse practitioner? No, I took a family nurse practitioner. There were pediatric nurse practitioners. There were adult nurse practitioners. I decided to uh, be able to treat people and learn about peds, uh, newborns, all the way to uh, old age and uh, uh, taking care of the elderly. Which, But I focused in within that practice. I worked at a clinic and took care of thousands of patients first. And then during the, the evenings, I'd make uh, hospital rounds uh hospice rounds home health rounds and long-term care rounds and but i did see clinic patients from the lifespan for a few years and then i just focused in on the elderly which i liked but i can still take care of uh, patients through the lifespan and continue my education and learning uh for the whole lifespan from your perspective now as an attorney do you see liability cases involving nurse practitioners I do, with increasing frequency. Now that uh, lawyers and the general public know what nurse practitioners do, a heartbeat away from a doctor or a doctor in your area, the same type of medical setup, providing care, uh, dis uh, dispensing medication, uh, prescriptions, and providing uh, medical care. Uh, so lawyers have finally caught on that these people, uh, individuals like us, can be uh, targets of a lawsuit. And also, uh, that is why I always tell everybody to carry your in own portable insurance. You never know what can happen. Yes, yes. That's often a question that nurses ask. Do I need my own policy? My employer will cover me. And I'm sure you have an opinion on that. I do. Uh, the practices, from my experience, I can't speak for all practices, but I've looked at several hundred practices. And the doctors and uh, other nurse practitioners invariably, when they buy a group policy, buy claims made insurance, which is uh, if when the claim is made, if insurance is still in existence, it'll be covered. If it's not, it won't be covered. That's what's called the tail. Even after you leave and you are put in charge of paying your own policy from the old job, the occurrence based uh, is uh, you had the insurance when a certain alleged malpractice occurred, you left that practice, and then they sue you two years later, you're working at another job doing a totally different thing. That occurrence-based insurance, although you dropped it, if it was in effect while the uh, issue that allegedly occurred happened, you're covered. And that's why I prefer occurrence-based insurance versus claims made. Claims made is cheaper, and that's why the uh, bosses or whoever you're working for, or if you work by yourself, remember the difference. And I have a few articles on doximity on that. All right. Well, in the one or two minutes that we have left, what are some of the top allegations that you have seen against nurse practitioners? Primarily uh, board cases, not many lawsuits. Uh, here in Texas and in half the states, you have to have a collaborating physician. So if there's a lawsuit, they go after the physician first. The nurse practitioner is generally a fact witness. Secondly, the complaints to the board are the primary ones I deal with. Unfortunately, individuals who maybe uh, often exaggerate the harm or uh, were just frustrated with the system 
or insurance companies that were billed wrongly, and none of these things were the nurse practitioner's fault, they get reported to the board. Telemedicine right now, I tell all the nurse practitioners, be careful for whom you work and ask for the billing so you can make sure that your billing on your MPI number is correct. So those are the top two. And then, of course, the third would be any harm to the elderly, which could have civil and criminal ramifications, along with uh, being very careful about drug dispensation. The DEA watches that carefully. Be very careful about uh, your prescription monitoring program in effect in your state or states that you practice. That's great advice, Joe. Thank you. With me is Joe Flores, a legal nurse consultant who turned into an attorney, worked his way through law school by working as a legal nurse consultant for a group of attorneys. And I know that our listener, Joe, will be interested in knowing how you got into the field of legal nurse consulting. And maybe at that time, it was even called medical legal consulting, which is what it was named when I got involved in the field. That's correct. Uh, over a quarter century ago now, I started <laughs> reviewing medical records, just happenstance, going to go visit a friend of mine who worked for a powerful lawyer in my area. He was one of the best trial lawyers I've ever met. And he brought me a set of records and asked me to look at them. And I looked at them, I gave him my opinion, and I found the burning documents about a patient being starved and how they were putting 100% consumed for their eating but the patient's uh, uh, pre-albumin and albumin levels didn't reflect that. So I pulled those out along with uh, the documents that had the same ink, same handwriting that said 100% eaten, 100% eaten. And I said to him, what we have here is a gathering of nurses on a Saturday, likely in a nursing home and state is coming and they're filling out every blank. And so he used that wisely during his deposition at the case settlement later on I I got a whopping month's salary out of just looking at some records. And I told him, I can't take the check. And he said, you have to. I settled it for seven figures. And uh, he said, uh, you've got a talent for these things. So I started reviewing the records. And then I became more interested in the law. I saw the side of uh, practice and I liked it. Uh, when I did go to law school, I did as much cross-training as I could, mock trial, appeal, appeal law took all different types of law, including administrative law, which uh, I made the highest grade on. I loved it. So I said, this might be something I might be interested in. And so uh, part of my practice has been administrative law, defending nurses, and uh, also uh, federal law. And uh, I still use my LNC skills to review all my records. And when I need extra hands, I've got a good team of LNCs. But there's always a need for LNCs uh, with lawyers, even if they don't know it. Well, let's talk about why they don't know it. What is it? It's so self-evident to you and I as legal nurse consultants that nurses bring tremendous value to this equation. But why is that knowledge difficult for some attorneys to assimilate or absorb or accept? Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. One of the most important lessons I learned as a successful LNC was that I wasn't selling a product as much as I was offering a relationship. When you adopt that attitude, you give potential clients 
compelling reasons to make price the last item on their list of questions for you, or an issue that doesn't even arise because you have them so eager to work with you. Embrace the idea that a brand is the promise of an experience. How are you going to make your client feel as a result of being in a professional relationship with you? It could be as simple as to show you as an LNC who serves and takes care of people that you are being called to serve. Branding means showcasing that difference. In the case of LNCs, that means demonstrating how we provide services for attorneys that involve a high level of care, attention, and nurturing in a way that sets us apart from other LNCs. You don't want every attorney as your client. A bad first case is not only discouraging, it costs you money. Your branding should attract the kinds of clients with whom you want to work. Your job is to choose your brand and project it consistently in all your marketing, your logos, and any other material that represents your company. That's why brand design precedes marketing. My book, How to Heat Up a Fiery Brand for Your LNC Business, Tips to be Noticeable, will give you a complete guide to creating and building your brand. Order it at lnc.tips forward slash creating series. Now let's return to the show. Very easy. Uh, pride for one, cost for another, and three, the lack of knowledge. A lawyer, a trial lawyer, uh, is often his suit and his uh, pen and his cell phone or his uh, armor and his swords, respectfully, his or her. And they have to, just like physicians have it in their head, they have to know everything and have control over everything. They have to have control over their experts. So they, uh, if they deal with an LNC, they immediately say, do you testify? You know, they're always thinking about the trial ahead. Now, some LNCs don't uh, testify, so they'll drop them out. Many, nine out of 10 LNCs, I mean, hate to take the stand. They want to work behind the scenes. So the lawyer, he or she is missing out on a very good tool. And so they worry about the cost. They've already spent ten or 15000 on experts, maybe on a product's case up to 100000 so every penny counts. The more cost, they, it's a business, the more cost and things that they spend on for experts, the less bottom line for the client, the less bottom line for the lawyer. And so you're building a case, but also looking at the bottom line. Uh, clients are just thinking about, well, what am I going to get or my the money at the end of the rainbow? Well, nothing's guaranteed. The, uh, the case can be won and a judgment can be issued, but uh, that judgment cannot be withheld, can be appealed, can re... Uh, uh, they demur not to hear it, the appellate courts, or they send it back for further consideration and a new trial. I've tried a case four times over 10 years in my experience. Mm. That's rare, but it happens. So I wanted the LNCs to get inside the lawyer's head. And then lastly is just more education. Say, uh, you'll save a lot of money 
if you allow me to review your records and you'll save a lot of money on experts if i can give you an idea of what you need looking at the huge amount of records i may even augment it and know somebody who does discharge planning social work psychological work and and point out areas where you may need an expert at an effective rate and uh, the attorney will look at that as uh, something uh, that is cost efficient and adds to their practice without any bruises to the ego of somebody trying to rule their roost, uh, their office. Um, you know, they feel threatened by that so often. Uh, but some some lawyers are very comfortable in their skin after years of practice and take help from wherever it comes from. Now, one of my strong experiences or strong impressions from having been doing legal nurse consulting since 1987 is the detail-oriented eye that the successful legal nurse consultant has leads to picking up things that the attorney would have missed. Um, I share this example a lot of, of walking into an attorney's office and he was handling a case involving a neonate who overdosed on um, potassium chloride because the nurse gave 10 times the dose that was ordered. And I said to the attorney, the nurse should not have been giving potassium chloride IV push. That's not one of the approved drugs. There's a list in the hospital. He said, well, how do you know there's a list? And I said, because I was the staff development director. I was in charge of teaching the nurses about the list and making sure that everyone knew which drugs were dangerous. And he said, every doctor, I had five doctors look at this case and none of them said anything about that list. And I said, that's because I'm a nurse. That's why you need to have a nurse helping you. And he, with a lot of hemming and hawing on the part of the defense, finally got the list and potassium chloride was not a drug that the nurse was supposed to be giving. So that just that one piece of, ramped up the liability hugely turned out to be a case that he settled uh, was 25 years ago for seven million dollars and he was eternally grateful and completely sold on the value of having a legal nurse consultant on the team after that experience i'm sure you've had similar experiences joe where you see something that other people would miss because you have that nursing background that makes it jump out at you and kind of shake you by the shoulders and say, hey, attorney, pay attention to this. This is a big deal. That's right. And it's how you sell it. And uh, unfortunately, they don't tell teachers business skills, how to handle money or how to handle marketing and sales in nursing school. We're not merchants. We're administers of, uh, we administer health and we dispense uh, care to patients. Uh, we can establish a rapport within two minutes with a patient or less, but why can't we establish a rapport with lawyers that quickly? Well, it's because they're not patients. They are going to pay us, and we're not accustomed to eating what we kill or looking for a job uh, like that, uh, sort of like a mercenary looks for a job uh, to, to make money. So the first thing I would tell people is to get into the door is say, I have a way to make you more money. That's going to get their attention right away. I've never seen a letter from an LNC that I've not put up in a folder, in a binder. I have many CVs. When it comes uh, 
knocking, I, I refer the, the lawyer to these people that have sent me their CVs uh, that I think would be the right fit by personality, by their background, and uh, by the way they sold themselves to me, you know, uh, but it's a business. And so um, I would tell people to tell an attorney first, I can make a difference in your case. I can bring justice to your client. And additionally, I believe I can make you more money. Give me a chance. I'll work half or eight or something. That's That gets you through the door. That's a good sales pitch because we do need to pitch to the attorneys and say, why should I hire you? Those two reasons right there will, will hit their heart and their mind quickly because they are after justice, first of all. And if justice and they do good and they do very well in their job, then the blessings of money will follow. But most lawyers, uh, contrary to popular belief, are not after the money. They're after the victory. And whether it's ego or whether it's... Uh, primarily for justice, that's what the, the bottom end result is. And then the money follows. So they, and they're looking at that. Saving money, making money uh, uh, is the second point, but helping your clients get justice will get their attention. And yes. it, it won't sound trite or untrue. It's, it's sincere, spoken from the heart. As we think about the nursing shortage and what it's like to practice nursing today, I know you as an attorney and as a nurse certainly have seen some of the consequences that we are dealing with right now in 2020 based on what's happening in healthcare. Can you tell me from your perspective, trying cases and some of those cases involving nursing, what you're seeing as an attorney? Well, uh, first of all, uh, thank you for having me on. And I'd like to say that uh, as a nurse practitioner and an attorney, that uh, what I've seen are trends and mega trends of low staffing. Doing more with less has become even more pronounced. And the nursing shortage has become uh, epidemic. And then nurse practitioners tell me, that why, I can't, why can't I find a job? I say, well, there's a, a glut of nurse practitioners, but bedside nurses is the problem. And I think we can reconcile both by working together. Interesting. So you're seeing an excess of nurse practitioners and an undersupply of staff nurses. That's correct. Uh, many nurses have left the bedside because of COVID, because of yeah. the pressures that are put on them by the corporations and the nonprofit corporations, which are nearly cor corporate, uh, but they fall under some protections for taxation. And they fall under some tort uh, claims act uh, protections that lower their limit of recovery if you sue them. So many of them seek the wing of nonprofit, but uh, their profits are still high, uh, but they're nonprofit. Uh, as long as they have one facility in the chain that uh, provides uh, medical care to the indigent, and it can be even a small wing. So that's what I'm seeing out there. And talking to nurses one by one as I give them consults individually, many of them want me to look at their contract from uh, a nurse to a nurse practitioner. And uh, as we've seen at great institutions like in Dallas, um, that uh, they are suing their own nurses, eating their own young and saying, you leave, you owe us tens of thousands of dollars. At Parkland, for instance, they have done that. And, uh, and they have... They signed a contract 
so the, the hospital, being a former hospital lawyer, I would enforce that. Mm. I know that side of it. And so they're suing these poor nurses for 50000 for breaching their contract uh, for a two-year contract or maybe breaching their ge- geopolitical, I mean, uh, geo- geographical uh, areas. So those are the things that I'm seeing, and it's creating a shortage. Uh, the other shortage also is those that want to go back to school. Uh, you know, 40% of whites have a degree. 20% of minorities have a degree. Um, kids are trying to make a living waiting tables and stuff. And, you know, they can't go back to school and just put everything down. As we all know, in nursing, you barely survive during nursing school because of your clinicals and your theory. Uh, you have a 40-hour week at least, uh, not including studying. Working is, is hard. So uh, what uh, has been launched down here in the South Texas at the South Texas College uh, for Young People is the first apprenticeship in the U.S. to provide payment um, to apprentices that want to become an RN and they get clinical hours paid for. Uh, And this is a new sort of experiment that has just hit the, uh, the digital media and that I heard about today which I think is a good idea. Yeah, that sounds like a tremendous benefit. And I would, I'm going to talk with the uh, uh, individuals that are most influential with health and human services in an ethical way and tell them we need to expand this out to nurse practitioners. That way they are paid for going out and doing their clinical hours and that they are paid uh, and then they're assigned an area to do clinical instead of having to the traditional hunt and get whatever you want. This would provide a uh, equalization of the table. Some nurse practitioners get a thousand hours of very comprehensive training. Others don't get the same training. And so we have a fragmentation of knowledge base and best practices. And that's not disparaging to anybody. It's just that uh, the way the market is set up, uh, the nurses, turning nurse practitioners have to find anybody they can to do their hours with. Mhm. Mhm. You know, and I know even before the pandemic began that getting placement in a nursing school was challenging because of you know a variety of factors, one of which I remember from when I came out of my master's program and was trying to decide should I go into staff development, should I go into a baccalaureate program? the pressures on educators to get degrees, to do research, to maintain a clinical practice for pay that was a pittance compared to those responsibilities kept a lot of qualified people out of faculty positions. And then they tend to be older. Uh, uh, They've put in their time, they've earned those degrees. So faculty are retiring and then there's this continual need to bring people into the RN programs. And that also, I think, is part of what people have struggled with over the last couple of years. Have you seen that as well? You're right. Uh, I taught for a decade and uh, part-time. The pay wasn't very good, but I found uh, the uh, the rewards just boundless. Mm-hmm. What I would submit to my over 50 brethren in nursing is think about uh, in your retirement years, say where you see yourself in five years, include in those five years part-time teaching mm-hmm. and leaving your legacy. I ask you all to leave your legacy 
and show the young nurses how you were taught in the 70s and the 80s, even the 50s and 60s, if you're still around and you can walk and you can talk. Why can't we use these silver foxes out there who uh, have the experience, training and knowledge and were taught by World War II nurses how to do nursing from preventing skin wounds to uh, watching for signs of malnutrition to signs of infection? Uh, and also heart failure and lung failure to be the to teach them how to be guardians like they are that they could see somebody sick a hundred feet away they could smell alcohol ten feet away they could sense domestic violence within uh, uh, a circle who uh, you know whose might be in danger of domestic violence those kinds of things come with experience mm-hmm. and uh, I would submit that. The lack of uh, instructors is the, the retirements. We need to bring back a force of people over 50 to be teachers. And that way, uh, the younger people learn respect for their elders, value experience, and then they themselves will will get out of their skin a little bit and learn a few things other than by Internet and the things they're doing. Uh, learn things by hand. Uh, watch one, do one, teach one on everything you do. And do it with all your heart and uh, things will be all right. But that's one solution that I want to bring out about to our leaders to bring out elderly nurses uh, over 55 to come out and start teaching again. You they themselves that, might Joe. have a comfortable. Calling, I'm sorry, go ahead. You got to watch that. Calling people over 55 elderly could get you in a lot of trouble. Well, I'm right there with you all. <laughs> so I would say our elders. Our elders. Um the we are gerontologist the uh, who I see at Johns Hopkins says the older adult is the term that he prefers to use. Then I am an older adult. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. I, I always appreciate your wisdom and your insight on these matters. You bring a, a fresh perspective and I'll see you on the next podcast. Thank you. This is Pat Iyer with Legal Nurse Podcast. I'd like you to meet Jane Butler, who is a registered nurse from England, who has a practice as a health coach. We talked in our podcast about something that can affect every one of you, whether you're in menopause age or not, whether you are a woman or not, and that is the sleep issues that we can have tend to be exacerbated through menopause. And Jane and I discussed this as a topic that we thought would be helpful to you, also helpful to me when I'm laying in bed trying to go to sleep. I'll be thinking about Jane's tips. Jane, please give our viewer just a taste of some of the topics that we covered in your podcast. Thanks, Pat. We spoke um, around the, the benefits of sleep and how important it is and what it actually stands for for us and the different types of interruptions that that people, whether it's in menopause or not, have experienced. We also touched on some of the less helpful solutions that people have applied to try to support themselves during those um, nights that they lay awake. We also touched on the things that are much more beneficial, things like what we eat, what we drink, um, and and general lifestyle issues. And then we had a, a couple of examples of what could support you in the middle of the night if you can't get yourself back to sleep. Um, and as you rightly say, these are things that have been very useful for menopausal women, but also for anybody who's having some issues around sleep. Thank you, Jane. 
Be sure to look for Jane Butler's show. You'll get some practical information. And if you are like my husband and you close your eyes, no matter where you are, and you go to sleep, then you can understand what the rest of the world is going through. And if it's not you, it could be the person sitting next to you who is struggling with these issues. Be sure to get Jane Butler's podcast and I'll see you on her show. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.